I realized it's been over a year since I've gotten to preach in front of the congregation in person, so it's exciting to be back in front of you. Maybe some of you don't know me. My name is Nick Rogers. I'm one of the, I am one of the pastors here over family ministry, specifically youth ministry, so the youth get to see my pretty face every week. And so uh, they're excited, I'm very sure, this morning that I'm up here. But it's a privilege and an honor to always preach the Word of God. It is powerful, and you need to hear from it today. So would you turn with me, not to Luke, but to Isaiah 53. We'll be in verses 4 through 6. The title of this sermon is Healed by His Wounds. If you grew up in a very traditional Baptist church like I did in the South, this is going to have a lot of appeals that remind me of home. I probably won't preach it the same way, but I am going to appeal the same way that I heard many, many pastors do before me. So, familiarity. Familiarity. It can be a really good thing, especially if you don't need Google Maps anymore because you just know the way around Dayton so much that you just know where you're going. That's a very good thing. But familiarity can also be very harmful. Familiarity could mean, definition-wise, close knowledge of something, which is the good part, or it could mean extensive knowledge or close association with someone or something that leads to a loss of respect for them or it. See, we can become so familiar with views of Yellowstone National Park that should take our breath away, but if you go so many times, it just kind of loses its flavor. Or, if you look at this next picture of deep space that the Hubble telescope took, that is a collision of 13 galaxies coming together. It's not fake. It's a real picture. That's amazing. Powerful. God is so immense that 13 galaxies in the deepest part of space are colliding, and we had no idea until just a few years ago. These things should fill us with awe. Be awe-inspiring, but sadly, we've seen enough pictures in enough places that it doesn't seem like anything shakes us anymore. We just shrug them off. So, familiarity could be about this text for some of you, for some. Maybe you've read Isaiah many times, maybe you've heard it preached many times, and you're in danger of this falling into the familiarity category of losing respect for it, or awe of it. I've heard this text read, preached many times. But there are some here today who I'm very excited for you. You have never heard this text before, never preached, never read it. And for you, I would say praise God. Because you get the blessing of hearing it for the first time. This is God's word, and it's powerful, and it's true. So let's pray real fast before we get into the meat of this sermon and ask God to show us Christ today. Do so with me. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit who is actively working this morning. God, as we just sang, show us Christ. God, cause people to pay attention who have not paid attention before and cause the weary Christian to feast this morning on the word of God and be full in your name. Amen. So let's talk about the context, theme, and setting of Isaiah. 
Because when you just hop into something like Isaiah, it really is important that you set it up well, because we are blessed when we understand that. When we understand some of these themes, what we get is we get a real person, Isaiah, in real history in ancient Israel, prophesying to God's people. This is real stuff. It's not in the fiction aisle. And so I hope you walk away encouraged and edified as we look at these things and set them up so that you'll see the beauty and the real majesty of what Isaiah is really prophesying. So here we go. Let's start with the uh, setting of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, Isaiah 1.1. His call to ministry came in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6.1, which is the most famous chapter of Isaiah. And then that was around 740 B.C. And he lived long enough to record the death of Zanacharib, Isaiah 37, 38. So that was 60, 681 B.C. The main theme or heart of Isaiah is really hard to like nail down in a sentence, but I tried very hard for you. So you're welcome. Uh, the idea or the theme, the main theme... It's the judgment of God's people. What I really wanted to do is put a parenthesis there. That would be verse, or chapters, verse, ah, stop saying verses, Nick. Chapters 1 through 39. That would be all of that encompassed in there in judgment of God's people for their sins and their ways of turning away from God. Followed by their ultimate salvation, chapters 40 through 66 and their future hope. Really awesome stuff in Isaiah. Finally, the context. Of chapter 30 or chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is located in the second division of this book, which starts in chapter 40, like I just said. This is the section of salvation and hope, not in themselves, this is really powerful, but in God's servant who he would send. Therefore, in chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah is prophesying about 200 years into the future. When they would come back from the Babylonian captivity, he's not even living through what he's writing and prophesying. So he's writing for their future hope that he will never experience in his lifetime. Now he sees in glory. And then we're going to see another prediction that this comes true 600 or so years in the future under the ministry of the Messiah, the servant of God, Jesus Christ. God's servant, we're going to conclude in this sermon, is confirmed in the New Testament as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who we've been walking through his story in Luke's gospel. That is who this is absolutely speaking about because chapter 53 of Isaiah is referenced 85 times in the New Testament or alluded to. So quoted verbatim, but also alluded to 85 times in the New Testament. So we have a big, big text in front of us this morning. Finally, I think we're ready to read Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Read with me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone 
to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So my first point is this. Jesus carried. We're going to look at verse 4 in particular. One of my favorite parts of the Lord of the Rings, which if you have never watched or read, you should, is a scene on Mount Doom. It's in The Return of the King, which is the last book or the last movie in the series. And Frodo and Sam have made their journey all the way to the foot of Mount Doom to destroy the ring of power and eliminate Sauron, the main villain. There's a scene where Frodo collapses and he can go no farther. The ring has just destroyed him and he can't carry it a step further. Man, that gets me choked up. It's such a good scene. If you've never seen it, you should absolutely see it. Sam picks him up and carries him to the foot, to the entrance of Mount Doom to destroy the ring. He carried Frodo where Frodo could not go anymore. It's a really powerful picture as we begin to think about verse 4 here. So let's look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Remember, our, our context, our first context was written to Israel to bring them hope in this future servant to come who would do what Israel has been unable to do the entire Old Testament. There was 39 chapters of judgment before you get to these sections. So the Old Testament is full of Israel's, of stories of Israel's inability to love and serve God, let's say even marginally well. They're unable to be the servant. So the Old Testament shows us Israel's griefs and their sorrows, especially as they return from a long captivity in Babylon. So we know now that the servant of God, again, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We know this, again, as I said, because of the apostles who confirmed it and Jesus Christ himself. himself. Quotes from these passages in Isaiah. So what's even more amazing as we consider this passage is what it can mean for the Christian and for the non-Christian this morning. For the Christian, brother and sister, please listen. Feast on the word of God this morning. And once again, consider the sufferings and agonies of Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. And what it took for him to accomplish your atonement. But also, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ today, look at what Jesus is offering you. He carried your burdens and sorrows to a hill on Calvary. Now Calvary, as Christians say all the time, is just called Golgotha. It is the crucifixion site of Jesus Christ. It's a place of pain, death, and suffering. Today, there's a highway running by it. So today, what this means is that you and I were all in the same boat as Israel, Israel was then, without hope in ourselves. No hope of atoning for our sins. So to be human then is to have griefs and sorrows that we you and I alone cannot carry and are unable to carry. 
Verse 4 shows us all, and I use all caps here in my notes, all of the world's sorrows and griefs, all of the evil done to you. Maybe you're an abuse victim. Maybe you've experienced marginalization. Maybe you've experienced pain so intense, loss so intense. And sadly, sometimes the one that hurts most of all is people have left you. And the things that hurt most in the world, like the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a child, or let's just even say really bad weeks where nothing goes right. And some of you feeling like no one will sit and listen to understand your pain and your loss. Look at this text. Jesus carried your sorrows and your griefs up the hill of Calvary. Jesus bore these burdens on the cross. And how did Israel treat Jesus, the servant? Let's see it in verse 4. Yet we esteemed, him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What this means is they basically accused him of the disease of heresy. The ultimate heretic to call himself God. And they called him a criminal, a rebellious man against the Roman Empire, worthy of being treated like a thief and a murderer of crucifying him on a cross. To this day, considered the worst instrument of torture ever conceived by human beings. So Jesus carries our griefs and our sorrows, and yes, we see that we mistreat him, and Israel did too. So we ponder anew today and let that sink in for us. We are truly sinful people, and Israel was a sinful nation. We saw 39 chapters of such of that. Taking the servant of the Lord, and then as he's doing this unbelievable act that only God can perform, we call him guilty, evil, heretic. The text doesn't let us get off the hook because it includes us. It's not just them. This is for us today. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yet he still carried the cross. Let's look at my second point. Jesus was pierced, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. I think it's a good point in this sermon to really ask a I believe, an important question. Why did Jesus ever have to be pierced and take our place in the first place? Why did this even have to happen? The text says right there that it was because of our transgressions and our iniquities. Those are strange words. What do they mean? Well, they mean a transgression is to intentionally disobey the law or a command. And if we're talking about God, and narrowing it down to the way that Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew did, that is in our hearts. We have disobeyed God daily and in the millions. 
if it's all the way down into our own thoughts and heart motivations. Well, then an iniquity is immoral or unfair behavior, which Jesus can, constrains even deeper into the very heart motivations you have. So that means transgressions and iniquities have added up. So online, if you're watching, or in person, we're all included. Our transgressions mark us, you guessed it, as a transgressor. Another way to say that is that we are by nature sinners, a word that no one likes, but everybody is a part of. Our sins mean that we have occurred debt with God. This is because God says that sin must be dealt with. He does not slide sin under the rug. He doesn't move it away. He doesn't just overlook it. He must be satisfied with the payment of sin. And what that means for you and me is that no one in here or online is good enough, rich enough, smart enough to pay back these transgressions and iniquities to earn any type of favor or cleansing from God. And you might be here or online and you argue, I'm really not this bad, Nick. I am not as bad as you're saying that I am. But I encourage you to keep on listening because you are. And that's okay because we're all there. There are many, many examples of sins in the first 40 chap, 39 chapters of Isaiah that God brings up to Israel. But I want us to choose one. It's not the one that you're probably thinking I'm going to choose, but it's interesting. And I think it really is impossible for anyone to avoid. It's going to really talk to all of us this morning. It's found in Isaiah 30, and I'm going to do verses 1 and 9 through 11. It'll also be on the screen. And it's the sin of avoiding God's voice. Listen, and really ponder these words. Ah, stubborn, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine. And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Verse 9. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, which by the way, Isaiah is a prophet, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Here's the real kicker. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And we could say that of the way that some of us want preachers today. Speak to me smooth stuff. Give me some illusions or a TED Talk and I'm good. In observing this brief example, I think we can see that some things really stick out to us. Do you see, first, we all do that. We all are a part of this problem. We're all sinners just like them. And so do we see the need for atonement? And all atonement means is reparations or payment for wrong or, energy, or injury. 
But we can't pay back God's atonement. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But we do need atonement for all of these sins. So I'm praying that the Lord would see, would show you the need for rescue. And we also see in the church today that we must remember that we're not different than them. Sure, it may be in big churches with lots of money and, and unique things. But some in this, in this age in our churches are consumed by politics, social media, world issues, science, blogs, and charismatic leaders than they are more concerned with the word of God. Don't give me this. Give me something else. And we got to ask, what are we wanting? What is the other thing that we love to hear more than anything else? What is the smoothest words that could ever be spoken to our listening ears? Well, I'm going to give it to you. We love to confirm. We love for people, our preachers, our people speaking to us. We want them to confirm what we love, value, and celebrate. Sometimes we want it so bad, we will never open this to see if God has already said something. So we would expect after all that we've discussed, if we were just reading this for the first time, which some of you are, you would expect that verse 5 is going to be real bad news. The second half for the sinner. But look what it says. Upon him... Was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So our biggest need today, your biggest need today, I'm going to tell you, is not getting out to eat lunch at a better restaurant so that no one's there. It's not your first need. Not a better eating habit so that we can lose weight. Not a better job. Not a better home life. Not a better spouse. Not better children, not better business plan, not better school, not better relationships. Your biggest need is to be at peace with God. And the amazing thing is Jesus purchased your peace with his blood on a cross. For some of you today, you will continue to remain in unbelief, it seems. But I hope that's not true. Don't remain in non-repentance. Because you face judgment. You're not at peace with God. God must punish you for your sins if you remain in this state. But the amazing news is if you repent, healing and peace comes from confessing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Look with me at 1 Peter 2.24 on the screen. It says, He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might, live, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, we've been healed. See, Jesus paid it all, as we already sang. Atonement for our transgressions paid in full. J. Oswald wrote about this text as it reflects all the Old Testament. This is what the entire sacrificial system is about. Making it possible for sinful humans to have fellowship with a holy God. And Jesus has done that. So I pray you listen. I pray 
for the non-believer that you would listen. I pray that the Holy Spirit would draw you in power today to repent and trust in Jesus. But for the one who is a Christian, feel that peace that has come through a perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. My last point, Jesus was pierced. Verse 6, we all, like, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. The real point of this verse is to contrast me and you with Jesus Christ, the servant of God. As Sam Alberry said, as he preached here a few years ago, sheep are stupid. I love that. Stupid means having a great lack of common sense. Sheep will run off a cliff just because another sheep did it. And you're like, I do that. Yeah, you're like, yeah, that's, that's us. How are we like sheep? Well, it says right here in the text, it's because we turned our own way. We wonder from God because we just don't want him. So how do we stray? How does that look like as we follow all of this world off a cliff with the other sheep? Well, I think it's a few things. We chase things like comfort, familiarity, we want to be safe, jealousy, they have what I want, so I'm going to get it, idolatry, we worship and give our time and energy to things that are not God, riches, we just want as much wealth as we can get, fame, we want people to love us. Acceptance, we want them to never be mad at what we choose to do. And purpose, some of us are driven by the need to feel like we have a purpose in this life and we don't want to look at God to get it. So I would summarize this as there is a big bent in the human heart and it has always been there for us to want to be happy, healthy, and comfortable. Those are not bad things in themselves. Let me just say Nick said, comfort and happiness is bad. No, I didn't say that. I said we chase them to worship them so that we can have everything that we want. We ignore God to seek those things. That's the problem. We turn our own way because we see it glamorized on big screens and on our phone screens and everywhere else we look, but specifically into our imaginations. And what did God do with Jesus to purchase these things back, to, to atone for these things, to bring us into fellowship with him, into peace with him. What did he do? Well, God, the Lord, has punished him for the iniquity of us all. We know what iniquity is. It's our immoral behavior before God. Sin is like a disease, as Charles Spurgeon says here. This is a great quote, so I hope you listen well. God in his mercy treats sin as a disease. Through the sufferings of our Lord, sin is pardoned. And we are delivered from the power of evil. Praise God. This is regarded as the healing of a deadly malady. Sin is abnormal, a sort of cancerous growth which ought not to be within the soul. Sin is disturbing in humanness. And here God declares the remedy for this deadly disease. Healing comes through Christ's wounds. The whole of Christ was made a sacrifice for us 
His whole manhood suffered for us. That's a powerful exhortation from Spurgeon. The sermon remains the same today. It's not changed. Sin is a disease. For some in this room, I hope for most in this room, your sins are covered, atoned for. You are healed in the name of Jesus Christ of your sins because of your repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So for some of you, that's amazing. You're at peace with God. Romans 8 is a reality for you that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we see that future reality, that present reality right here in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. It's like the the overflow goodness that we get on the back end of salvation. Look at this. Yet it it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Yes. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Praise God. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and I shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. It makes intercession for the transgressors. Not only are you saved into a family, given the riches of Jesus Christ for eternity, he prays for you, intercedes for you. What a gift. What a gift. So for the Christian brother or sister, you can be satisfied today in that knowledge. You can fight sin today because of that knowledge. You can have hope today that one day the wrongs done to you will be made right. But there is another group among us, online, other places. I would call them, and I don't mean this offensively, I just mean this is true. They are the miserable, the broken, the needy, the burdened, the prideful. I ask you, won't you stop doing that today? Stop living life your way and see Jesus today by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. No more waiting. Would you come to Jesus today and be healed? We've learned so much. Here's the end. We've seen the contrast between us and the servant, Jesus Christ. We've seen our condition. And where are you? My last exhortation to the non-believer, the person who is just, you, I'm hoping that the Lord is just working in you right now. I love the words to this old hymn, softly and tenderly. Would you listen to me? Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised. Promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. Come home. 
come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, the amazing words of the hymn, And Can It Be? How can it be that we get all of this and Jesus got all of that? This amazing divine transaction to save sinners like you and me, to make us at peace with God. I hope that overwhelms you at times. And you sing with Charles Wesley in this hymn. It says this, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus in all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Excuse me, sorry. So good. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown to Christ my own. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And then the chorus, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? 